Good afternoon, everyone. I'm David Craig, the editor for Real Clear Defense. And today we have joining us Sebastian Younger, who is developing quite a repertoire. Uh, his last book, Tribe, hopefully most of you have read already. And he has a follow-on book. I, I shouldn't say follow-on, but another book equally as impressive to me as Tribe, but in a different context called Freedom. And joining Sebastian and I is David Richardson, who was our first guest for Hot Wash. Um, and he will be chiming in and uh, joining the conversation uh, and what we got out of reading this terrific book. Sebastian, thank you uh, again for joining us uh, after we had met previously for Tribe and had a very, very long conversation. I apologize for it having taken so long, but you're so interesting, it's hard not to keep it going. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. In this book, I think the press release is almost misleading because it talks about your journey. And this journey you had talked about before, and you'd done a documentary on it, actually, with these other veterans that you went along the railroad tracks but in freedom, you sort of in, intertwine these narratives of the people that you're with, which is sort of the spine of the story and everything else branches from there. But the spine is not talked about too greatly. Uh, the terrain, the history, and then, of course, the meaning of freedom as it has evolved in the United States, uh, but throughout history as well, is just so masterfully done, I think, uh, because it's seamless. Thank the way you. that you transition between all of those things. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. I worked hard at it. And in the context of Ken Burns' most recent documentary, because I think that being a hot, maybe a hot, I don't know, is that a hot topic where you are too? The Ken, uh, the Hemingway uh, on, series? On, I haven't seen it. Um, yeah, it, it, it pops up on social media pretty regularly, but uh, that doesn't surprise me. He's a polarizing figure and Ken Burns is well known. So, yeah. Well, it's the thing I enjoyed about his take on Hemingway was he avoided making it polarizing, I think. Yeah. He left, yeah. I think he left it objective. Right. Um, I think it was fantastic. But there's many, the, the thing I liked about it was, and then reading your book was like, he obviously indirectly influenced some of your writing in some ways, obviously, I think. Um, and then, the, uh, yes, that for sure. Yeah. At, at least as far as you explaining things, how you see it, but doing it in a way that other people may not see it. You know, the, one of his great skills wasn't just his simplicity of writing, which is over, you know, really wasn't as simple as it seemed, I guess, because he went to great lengths to make it seem that way. But you have gone out and traveled the world. You've always found it fascinating to meet with, I don't, the working class is not a really good term to use, really. It's just, I was thinking the other day, it's kind of like people that are borderline adrenaline junkies in terms of taking risks and sort of living out there. Uh, it started with, you know, your first book on the fishermen. Um, you, loggers, you know, and military just happened to be another one, you know. And then, of course, what happened to Tim, um, you know, really got to me almost as though it was like a veteran that had passed away. Uh, 
but I don't know if you want to expound on, on any of that yeah. at all. Yeah, well, just so for, for, your, for our listeners, um, Tim Hetherington was my colleague in Afghanistan. We were off at a remote outpost called Restrepo off and on for a year. We documented that uh, with video. I wrote a book about it. And then Tim, um, Tim was killed in Libya a few weeks after we were at the Oscars for Restrepo, and his death was a devastating experience for me. And, and, um, and just another, another note the, 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 I like, I, I'm interested in work. Uh, I'm really interested in dangerous work. Most people that do dangerous work, um, aren't really doing it for thrills. The danger is a downside. And, um, Frankly, some of them get used to it and I think have a hard time living any other way. Um, I think a lot of New York City fire, I live in New York City. I think a lot of New York City firemen, and for that matter, a lot of veterans and whoever else um, would, ha you know, would have a hard time giving up the intensity of the life that they've chosen. But I, I, I think we should make a distinction between adrenaline junkies who are, um, uh, for some understandable reasons, seeking out risk for uh, sort of thrill and entertainment and people that are making a living doing something dangerous just to sort of get that, get that out oh, in yeah. front of us. No, that's um, a great point. Yeah. Um, the trip that I took. So at one point, Tim and I were headed down to Washington, DC. We had all this footage that we'd shot in Afghanistan and we wanted to make a documentary. We eventually did. And we were going down to DC to talk to National Geographic because we needed money to make our film. Um, we never got it. We funded it ourselves and then eventually sold it to Nat Geo. But but the um, on the way down, we were on the train from uh, New York to uh, to D.C. And I was sort of staring out the window and and I noticed that along the tracks, there always seemed to be a, a dirt bike trail or a footpath or, a, a, a you know, access road, you know, maintenance road or woods and fields or, you know, whatever. There was a way to walk along the tracks. And I said to Tim, hey. When all this is done with Restrepo, let's walk from let's walk from DC to New York along the railroad lines. You know, there's all these abandoned buildings you can sleep in, and bridges you can sleep under, and homeless encampments, and just you know, you, you go right through ghettos, right through cornfields, right through the middle, right through the suburbs. I mean, you see America from the inside out, and uh, it was clearly a kind of no man's land where you could get away with essentially committing vagrancy. It's also all trespassing, by the way. Uh, and just the, 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 I mean, you can hike the Appalachian Trail or whatever, but the railroad lines seemed really interesting and uh, socially, culturally, um, I, historically, I don't know, it just sort of hooked us. Tim got killed. I wasn't able to do that with Tim, but what I ended up being able to do was to take that same trip with a Spanish journalist, uh, Guillermo Cervera, who was holding Tim's hand in the back of a rebel pickup truck as Tim died after he was hit by um, mortar fragments in Libya. Um, and then a couple of, a couple of, sorry, a couple of uh, um, combat veterans that we had, that Tim and I had known out at Restrepo that we were fond of. And so this little group of four people, myself included, um, over the course of a year, walked along the railroad lines. We weren't hopping freights, we were walking. We walked the, walked the whole damn way, uh, sleeping out in the open, cooking over fires, um, everything, uh, all the way from, DC to Philly, and then we turn turn west. We headed west for Pittsburgh, uh, just about to the edge of Pittsburgh. Uh, that trip was called the Last Patrol. And in my book Freedom, I, I I realized looking back that was probably the freest I've ever been. And one of my def there are many different defin definitions of freedom, and you can pick and choose the one one that you like. And 
But for me, one of the things I said in my book was that we walked 400 miles and most nights we were the only people who knew where we were. And <laughs> that there, there are many definitions of freedom, but surely that's one of them. And so the, 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 the trip that we took is, uh, appears intermittently in my book amidst the research about um, how, how groups maintain their autonomy, maintain their freedom in the face of larger, more powerful groups, be that your own government or the Roman Empire or whatever it may be. Yeah, Sebastian, you know, I was going to, I've got your book uh, right here. Fantastic uh, book, by the way. I, it was one of those, I, I, I always I always take notes in the margin. I read it so fast, I didn't take a lot of notes in the margin. So when I read it, <laughs> so when I read it for the second time, I will. Um, Thank you very much. It's a fantastic book. Um, I've taken that route from... DC to New York and, and back a lot of times. And I, and I had the same feelings, <laughs> I, 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 you know, un, unlike the children uh, who were looking at you as they rode by, I, I would have been an adult with my face pacing yeah. to the window. I, it's just so amazing <laughs> because you're right. There's, yeah. I, there's, this, there's this one place on the way to, to New York or, or back from New York where you can see like campsites right on a, um, a lake. So, uh, I was going to ask you what the impetus for the book uh, was. Uh, so you've kind of amp- answered that. And so let me ask you this. Um, yeah. And you've already kind of alluded to why you titled it uh, Freedom. But which came first? Uh, the idea of writing a book about um, – and, 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 and you, don't, you never define freedom or, or anything like that. You just kind of – it kind of like oozes out of the book. But which came first, the idea to write about freedom – or did that come to you as you were on the travel? Uh, honestly, the idea of freedom came to me uh, later, some years after I completed the trip. Um, the trip really was an, ex- an attempt to experience my own country in a different way. Um, I felt altered, even though I wasn't a soldier. I felt altered by my, my intermittent year in Afghanistan with that platoon. Um, I felt very altered by Tim's death. I felt slightly like a stranger in this country, um, not nearly as much so as I think a lot of veterans feel, but it was it was there. I, I struggled a lot. I lost my first marriage in part because of the um, psychological, emotional repercussions of some of the experiences I had had. And um, so what I wanted to do was take this trip and just experience it and, and experience it with a, with with a few other guys where we depended on each other in that way that felt so miraculous in combat. And, but we didn't, none of us wanted to be in combat, right? We, I, I didn't want to get shot at anymore. I was done with that. But how can you, you know, how can you retain that sort of good stuff of very close affiliation um, without the tragedy that inevitably, inevitably comes with war? And then it was some years later, I was thinking about freedom as a core human value, you know, along with community. I mean, tribe it's another word for community. Um, the book's called Tribe because no one would ever buy a book called Community. So we, it, we, 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 so we called it Tribe. But basically, community, freedom, these are core human values. And I wanted to understand freedom. It's something every everyone intuitively understands and wants. Uh, people die for it. and um, But what is it? What's it mean? And how is it attained? And so yeah. that, that, you know, you, it could have been an extremely philosophical and probably tedious disquisition on an ambiguous word. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to really get into the nitty gritty of 
How do people maintain their freedom? The Apache in the Southwest, for example, why did it take almost 400 years for, for Spain and then, Amer then America to finally take those their freedom away? I, I mean, the, the, the Apache remained free almost until my grandmother's lifetime. Uh, just right. extraordinary. Well, you know, the, uh, now that you mention it, my favorite quote in the early part of the book, you wrote, the free the freedom that comes from being feared is tempting for people who have suffered that fear themselves, as many one percenters have. Yeah. Can you explain, you know, because obviously Dave and I, when you say one percenters, we obviously think of veterans, but... Can you sort of expound on, I mean, this should have been in the press release, really, this quote, I think, but. Yeah, so, so you know, at one point north of um, Wilmington, we ran across a motorcycle gang. Um, it was one of the first black motorcycle gangs in the country. And, um, you know, I'm not going to identify them, but they were straight up criminals. And, uh, um, and. But they gave you water. They gave us water. Yeah, they were nice enough to us at first. But then when Guillermo started wandering around a little bit, they had this sort of weird um, apocalyptic looking former factory as a as a uh, as a sort of party headquarters. And Guillermo started walking around a little bit and, and uh, went, went over to him and said, <laughs> if you keep walking in that direction, I'm going to have to kill you. <laughs> and, and then he was very matter of fact about it. But then I, they, they had this sort of like aggressive friendliness mm -hmm. that I know can flip into real aggression at the slightest sort of slip or transgression. I was like, we have to get out of here. These guys are killers and we're in danger. And uh, so we eventually got out of there, but I started thinking about the the freedom that comes with being feared. These guys, these are tough guys, I'm sure from tough neighborhoods. And, you know, even the cops feared these guys and it did give them a kind of freedom. And, you know, one of the points of my book is that if, if no one's scared of you, I mean, traditionally in history, I don't mean now, you know, we have a fairly law abiding nation with um, way, legal way, I mean, people are protected by our laws. But throughout history, hundreds of thousands of years of history, uh, if you were so benign that no one was scared of you, you probably were not free. I mean, you were probably were someone else's chattel. And that has been that is one of the, you know, arguably uh, sad truths of human history that I mean, the most aggressive people are often the freest because no one dares mess with them. Right. Yeah, that's a that's I think Yuval Harari would say the last time we were truly free were when we were hunter gatherers. So I, I don't know if we're going to get back there um, uh, to your right. point, you know, about being shot in at war. Yeah, there's nothing uh, that deflates your fascination with war like having, you know, somebody close to you killed. So I, uh, my condolences yeah. there for your uh, friend. You had a close friend. Thank killed Thank as well. It's kind of, so, um, violence, uh, is part of America. And I remember explaining to a lady in an art show one time that if you read the history of America, you're essentially reading a, a, a version of, of a history of violence. And the hundred years or so before the French and Indian war was kind of a set piece warfare. It wasn't, it was violent, but not, not like it became, and there was an incident that kicked off the French-American or the um, uh, French and Indian War here in America that you talk about in your book. Uh, and it, it involves our founding father, George Washington. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, we, we, we ended our trip in the little 
in the, in the small city of uh, Connellsville, Pennsylvania, Western PA. And very close to there, um, there was, there's a place called Jumonville Glen. Jumonville was a, a, a French officer in the 1750s who had been sent to, um, on a sort of reconnaissance mission to see where the English forces were arrayed in Western Pennsylvania. Everyone was vying for, the empires were vying for control of the Ohio River Valley, the Mississippi River Valley. I mean, that was the key to the empire, the key to the continent. And there was a lot of sort of, there was a big chess game going on in Western Pennsylvania, essentially. And so, so Jumonville um, and you know, I think about 30 Canadian soldiers uh, were camped in this little um, glen in the woods underneath this little cliff, you know, 15, 20 foot high cliff. And George Washington had been sent out uh, with some irregulars and some uh, native trackers and scouts. Uh, one of them, uh, oh, they were Seneca. One of them's name was the Half King. He was known as the Half King. Tenegrison was his, his native name had been sent out to sort of see where the, what the French were doing and to feel them out and to, and, and to, and to stop them. And uh, the half king led Washington's forces uh, all night long through the rain on a rainy May night um, to the edge of the French encampment while they slept. And they uh, awoke them with gunfire at dawn and killed the, you know, they, they were completely ambushed and outgunned and they, they eventually surrendered. And, and after losing quite a number um the, the, the French surrendered and, and that, um, and, and Jumonville was killed by the half king. The, the half king was seeking revenge for the death of his father at the hands of the French. And he ran up and just put a tomahawk in his head. That outraged the, uh, the French court, um, that sent reinforcements to, to, to Fort, du, Fort Duquesne. And so the reinforcements elicited an escalation of forces by the British, and that wound up in Braddock's defeat, a humiliating defeat at the hands of the French in Pennsylvania. And that, will, that could not stand. So the British sent more forces, and pretty soon you had the first global war, the Seven Years' War, that the British, and the British won that. And arguably, had they not won that, had the French won, the colonists would not have dared throw off the mantle of British protection because the French were breathing down their necks. But but the British won. And that, in some ways, might have allowed the colonists to actually contemplate independence from England. Yeah, I actually think it did. I think I think that was the that was kind of a, a um, enlightening moment for the colonists. And, and they realized that without the French in the way, they could move west. Um, speaking of moving. Um, on your feet, you walked all this, I think it's 400 miles. Uh, I've been on a lot of hikes, um, with a pack on my back. And what I never realized until you wrote about it was it's easier to walk a long ways actually with a pack on your back than it is without. Um, t tell us how you discovered that. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of deceptive, and I feel like having some weight on your back gives you a feeling of uh, purpose and momentum that can help the mental aspects of exerting yourself all day long. Um, in fact, it's more tiring. I mean, just physically, it uses up more energy. It beats your legs up. You know, we were carrying 60, 70 pounds, not a huge amount of weight, but if you're walking all day long, it starts to get to you. But there was something about that weight on my back that sometimes made me feel unstoppable. Um, and we were able to run if we had to. I remember just at one point we were feeling our oats and I, and I just sort of broke into a trot and, and, uh, it was actually along a bike path. We were going through Philadelphia, one of the 
few times we were on a sort of like public pathway and, and uh, the miles were marked and I notched a, I think I notched a nine minute mile with 70 pounds. And I was like pretty proud of myself because we'd been walking all day long. And I, and, and in my book, I have a, a line uh, that I couldn't resist writing. Basically, I was saying, you know, if you can't run a mile with all your gear, you got too much gear. And um, so, so we, um, one of the things that helped us the most uh, was falling into a kind, kind of cadence with each other. It would take a while, it would take an hour or two. And there was something about walking in a small group where the footsteps would start to sort of align with each other and you would get into, I don't know even quite what, what brain waves these are, but you'd get, you'd get lulled into this sort of lovely, it wasn't easy, but it wasn't hard. And, it, and, and it, you would get so much momentum going that it felt easier to keep walking than to stop. Stopping seemed hard. Continuing to walk seemed easier. Eventually that went away. By the end of the day, all you wanted to do was stop. But, but for a while, you had this amazing feeling of momentum. And that's what we were always seeking. And then the miles could just melt away. It was a pretty extraordinary feeling. Yeah, you described that very well. Yeah, you said throughout history, good people and bad have maintained their freedom by simply staying out of reach of those who would deprive them of it. That generally meant walking a lot. And then you highlighted Geronimo, and I, I'm really glad you did because, you know, I'd watched the documentary on him. Uh, you know, the Western perspective on him was just how brutal he was. But he rightly knew that if he had succumbed, he would have given up his freedom and the freedom of his people. And he masterfully, you know, navigated the mountains of the Mexican-American border and just really stymied. The only thing that stopped him was he just started losing too many of his own people. You know? Yeah. I mean, what was really instructive to me about that was that in that area, the American Southwest, there were basically two different ways of living in the native tribes. There were the Pueblo tribes that, that had stone and adobe houses on top of mesas. Um, they irrigated. They were quite wealthy. I mean, they stayed in place. And they, they because they were sedentary, um, they could accumulate wealth. And, and uh they were very, very well off for a Stone Age people, right? The Apache were completely nomadic. They, they, they in, in material terms, they were very poor. They survived off hunting um, and a very tenuous existence. Uh, and in our terms, they, they, you know, they were very poor people. They're essentially what we would call homeless, right? And and lived arduous lives. So what happened when the Spanish showed up in the 1500s? The Pueblo, the Pueblo tribes folded immediately. Um, they were no match for the Spaniards, and they couldn't go anywhere, right? They were rooted yeah. to their to their towns, to their fields. Their very wealth made them vulnerable to conquest. The Apache had nothing to lose, and they didn't have much to carry. And it took another 400 years or so, uh, 300 years, for Western powers, the Spanish and then eventually the Americans, to sort of pin them down and confine them on reservations. And that was because they were so mobile, because they were so poor. Yeah, and you referred to Ishi, which wasn't his real name. I, what, what tribe was he? But you referred to him as the last truly free American uh, on North Amer in North America. Yeah, yeah Ishi was a tragic figure. He was from the um, the Ahi tribe in California. Um, he turned himself in in I'm going by memory here, 1911, something like that. All the rest, all the rest of his people were had died. Um, he was the last wild native inhabitant of this uh, of this continent. Um, as skilled as he was, I mean, he was a completely Stone Age level of technology. Uh, as skilled as he was at survival, 
he could not survive on his own. Humans, even someone like Ishii, they die alone in the wilderness. They do not survive. Humans need other people to survive physically, to survive emotionally, psychologically. And eventually Ishii turned himself in and he, you know, he expected to be killed and he didn't really care. Um, and he was, uh, thank God for, for both Ishii and our knowledge of these people, um, he was sort of scooped up by an anthropologist, Alfred Krober at the, uh, UC Berkeley, and, um, and and he got a job as a janitor, but also basically he was an, he informed the anthropology department for years about how uh, about the Yahi survived in the wilderness, and it was extraordinary. He was just an absolute national treasure, um, and he died, you know, in his fifties, I think, around nineteen sixteen. Yeah, you know your your book, Freedom. Um as you move through all these topics, uh, Ishii, um, uh, uh, walking and that type of thing, uh, George Washington, it's it's fantastic because um, it's it's like a coherent stream of consciousness. I thought that was the uh, the, the, the the structure of it was fantastic, and you 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 broke it down into three separate parts: uh, run, fight, and think. Um, how did you how did you develop those three uh, parts of the book? Uh, well, I was trying to figure out what are the uh, what of the what 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 are the, the the devices that people use the techniques the tactics people use to maintain their autonomy in the face of a, a of a more powerful adversary. Um, the most the most natural. Uh, instinct if you're faced with danger is to run just get away from it i mean whether it's a predator or an armed group um whatever the the lightly armed people are usually faster and that's true of the taliban in afghanistan versus the u.s military it's true of smaller literally fighters boxers mma fighters versus larger ones large armies large people are um, they're stronger, but they're slower, and they use up more energy when they move. And so, running away from a larger adversary is a very smart move. It doesn't if it if it doesn't work, and often it doesn't. If you're cornered, then you have to fight. But in a fight, whether it's a street corner fist fight or the Taliban versus the U.S., size is a, does not determine outcome very accurately, very well. It's, it's not a good predictor of who will win. You know, witness Afghanistan right now. I mean, the Taliban. I mean, we all know this, right? The Taliban had had no no tanks, no artillery, um, obviously no air force. A lot of them didn't even have, didn't even have boots, and we're leaving, right? We it didn't work. Like we we negotiated for peace, and now we're, now we're leaving. And whatever you guys think of that, I mean, that's another conversation. But you would think that the the strongest military power ever in history would be able to handle the Taliban. Well, it couldn't. And what I say in my, and, and you know, don't get me wrong, the Taliban are atrocious, they're awful, their human rights record is just uh, uh, abominable. Um, but um, but my point in my book is that if the, the if the empire always won, there would be no freedom in the world. I mean, among other things, England would have would have uh, defeated the United States in, in, the, in the 1770s, 1780s, uh, and we would be a vassal, a vassal state of England. So, so the fact that the smaller entity can win opens up the possibility of freedom. Uh, in MMA fights, the larger fighter 
only wins about 50% of the time, 5-0, 50% of the time. And then and finally, if you're part of a society, I mean, what are you going to do? If you're an American or you're a Spaniard or whatever, you're not going to run away from your country and you're not going to fight it, hopefully. How do you maintain your freedom if you are, say, in the 19, you know, in the early 1900s, you're a, a mill worker that does not make enough money to live, that lives in atrocious conditions. How do you maintain your freedom in that context? You have to outthink your adversary, your advers adversary being uh, a corporate entity or the US government or what, what have you. And, and that's the sort of final component of how one maintains one's freedom. The Irish did it in, in Ireland against the English uh, in the early part of the 1900s as well. Uh, it, it's, a, it's among other things, it's a chess game. And the smaller power can often win it, obviously, win at chess as well. Yeah, that, that, I intuited that. But uh, thank you for, you know, walking me uh, the rest of the way through it. Look, uh, speaking of uh, slow, I, I, I recall when I was in Afghanistan and the Marine Corps was going to bring tanks in. And I, I kind of scratched my head and I thought, um, I, I, we, we might be confused a little bit if we're bringing in tanks. It's not going to help us any. Um, um, I've got to ask you about one, one piece of the book. Um, I, I don't know if you, have you ever read Albion Seed? Okay. Albion Seed is, is a scholarly, um, 800 page book, uh, that essentially tells or outlines why America is what it is regarding the migrations from Great Britain. And there's four major migrations. I'm not going to get into it. But the last one, the last great migration to the, to the Americas or uh, the, the North America was from the Scots-Irish. Um, and when they came in, uh, the Puritans and the Cavalier culture down south, the Puritans up north and the Quakers were somewhat aghast because they had thought they left those people behind. <laughs> and you referred to them as the, the notorious Scots-Irish, and I'm Scott-Irish. So I, I just wanted to expound on that. I, I loved it because, uh, you know, Jim Webb wrote, wrote a book uh, called Born Fighting, the History of the Scot-Irish. Um, so could, could you tell me about the, the notorious Scots-Irish? Well, they, yeah, I mean, in, I, I talk about them in the context of the Pennsylvania frontier, and look, a lot of hardworking, brave, tough people went went through that area. Right. I, I mean, the early Dutch, the Germans, uh, the, the the English. I mean, it was a it was a tough neighborhood. Killed a lot of people, and anyone in there was was very very tough. It had to be. Um, but then the Scotch Irish showed up, and it was and, and and at least in the accounts of the day, it seemed to be a whole other level of willingness to fight. <laughs> to fight, and uh, so there was literally there were there were. Um, I, I saw a reference in one one history, one old history book from the 1800s, that they were um, sometimes forgiven land land use fees yeah. in exchange for settling these sort of buffer areas between the natives and the rest of quote civilization because they just felt the Scotch Irish could take care of themselves and and could absorb the blows better than everyone else could. And I think the Scotch Irish newly arrived in this on these shores with probably not a penny to their name were very happy to take a you know, take a deal like that. And, um, you know, the, the, the same story was played out all throughout the South. The, 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 the South was settled by, by um, a lot of Scotch-Irish. And, and, you know, it, it has been said, and, and those people uh, form the bulk of the U.S. military. And it's been said that there's a martial tradition in 
Scotch-Irish culture. I'm part Scottish, by the way, as well, on my mother's side. Um, that there's a martial tradition that is sort of lives on in the current U.S. military today. Yeah, if you look at the combat casualties, you know, infantrymen, uh, any of the ground combat, it's it's stuffed with country boys, otherwise known as Scots-Irish, hillbillies, white trash, whatever you want to call us, uh, we're there. <laughs> um, so um, back to you, David. Yeah, um, in the in the second portion of the book, uh, in addition to war, you, you kind of talk about the balance of democracy and, and maintaining power for a nation state. Uh, you talk about a nation's freedom to maximize its own prosperity and an individual's freedom to own and control land. Um, and then you get into international law as one of the greatest achievements of Western society um, at, at maintaining that delicate balance between national so sovereignty and collective action. Um, but with that, too, uh, you, you mentioned because the outcome of any human conflict cannot be predicted with certainty, the powerful often end up having to negotiate with the weak and those who... And those negotiations invariable, invariably revolve around freedom. I think that really does a great job of sort of encapsulating the central portion of the book, so to speak. Yeah. Th thank you. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's worth circling back to this idea of defense. Um, so 5,000 years ago, just as an example of what happens when you can't defend yourselves, uh, 5,000 years ago, a nomadic group from the Russian steppe known as the Yamnaya, um, they had horse-drawn chariots and they fought with battle axes. And they basically rode roughshod through Europe and plunged into Spain. Uh, it wasn't Spain then, the, Iberi what, the Iberian Peninsula. And within 100 years or so, they seem to have wiped out all of the men of the, of the Iberian Peninsula. They, they, they traveled without women and they didn't kill the women, of course. They presumably mated with them uh, because the, the modern Spaniards carry the uh, genetic markers from the original Neolithic female population of Spain and from the Yamnaya. And, and the, the male Iberians 5,000 years ago, because they could not defend themselves, were completely scrubbed from the human gene pool. Obviously, a, an extreme deprivation of their freedom. And one of the amazing things about international law is basically the community of nations has said no individual nation will necessarily have to defend its own freedom from a, 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 an aggressive, maybe more powerful enemy. The community of nations will guarantee that. And um, it, it doesn't always work that well, uh, but the intent is there. And, and certainly, as my, my father grew up in Europe, uh, as fascism took over Europe uh, with the Nazis, um, the community of, uh, uh, of nations spearheaded by England and, the, and, and America um, restored freedom to Western Europe and arguably to the world. So, so it's, it's an, and, and human rights, a lot of human rights law and international treaties came out of that. So it's just, you know, we've come a long way from the Yamnaya and it, it means that we don't necessarily have to physically defend ourselves in order to maintain our freedom. But with that, too, you, you uh, cited James Woodburn on the Hadza uh, of East Africa, where he was quoted as saying, or you quoted him as saying, uh, inequalities of wealth, power, and prestige are potential sources of envy and resentment that can be dangerous for the holders of power. Um, 
Well, well, that, yes. Can I mean, you that's, expound on that? As, yeah, I mean, I mean that's very contemporary now, actually. But uh, no, of course. <laughs> I mean, look, hunter gatherer communities had the same um, interpersonal troubles that, we, that you know we do. Of course. I mean, if there was someone who was powerful and abusive of that, I mean, having power is one thing. Abusing your power, claiming special privilege because you're in a position of responsibility—that's another matter entirely. And so, hunter gatherer communities that were. Um, very vulnerable to 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 in, internal conflict and and uh, and you know that was one of the most dangerous things to their survival was internal conflict. Um, they had all these mechanisms for making sure that leaders and every group needs a leader that leaders were not able to exploit their position and a leader could might be a great hunter, for example. Um, Western society doesn't work that way, and as I say in the book, any society that's well organized enough to defend itself against an enemy is also well-organized enough to oppress its own members. Right. And, and that's where democratic laws come into play. Um, that's where the populace has to be on guard against an abusive or despotic ruler who, who wants to be in that position mainly to serve himself or herself. Yeah, you said the great value virtue of the hunter-gatherer societies around the world was that although leaders understandably had more prestige than other people, they did not have more rights, you know, and I think that contemporarily we have this issue now where the political class, so to speak, has over time evolved to distance themselves to having different rights. Like they don't pay any Social Security, um, you know, with the schools closing down, their kids all go to private school and they're getting t taught in person uh, as compared to the rest of us. Uh, Dave, did you? Or did you want to expound on that? Well, yeah. I mean, let me just let me just say there there is economic injustice or economic uh, disparity. Maybe a better word for it, which is in, right. what you just the examples you cited are those. But when the um, framers of the Constitution um, began um, began this great country, they did not exempt themselves from the laws of the land. They basically right. said, if we break the law, we're subject to the same laws that the citizenry is. And that the political leaders of this country uh, are there to serve the populace. The populace isn't there to serve them. And that was a break with thousands of years of, um, uh, of European tradition, of uh, monarch, uh, tradition of European monarchs, basically being sort of gods come to earth who could not, who were untouchable by the layperson. Right. Yeah, so uh, for the for the listeners out there, you can you can hear the topics that we're discussing, and they're they're pretty profound. Uh, you talked about the Gini coefficient. We, we don't have to go into that, but uh, oh yeah, you know Sebastian's book is 133 pages long. I'm sitting here looking at, at, at the last page, um, and you get at these things kind of casually, <laughs> which is which is great because that's kind of how you want to be. That's how you want it want to get to it because it's it's a surprise in a way as you tackle these things. Uh, so I, I'm assuming that you're uh, a voracious reader. What are you reading right now, Sebastian? <laughs> um, I, you know, I used to be a voracious reader. I have two young, uh, two young children, uh, two girls, age four <laughs> and age 16 months. Uh, and I'm, I, I'm working an awful lot. So I, I'm writing about fascism. Uh, my, my dad grew up in Spain and fled Spain when the fascists took over. And I'm writing about how fascism worked in Spain um, in the 1930s. And uh, so I just read a whole pile of books about the Spanish Civil War. I haven't read for pleasure in a, in a long time because I work really hard and I, I really want to get back to it. 
Have you ever looked at Robert Motherwell's paintings about the Spanish Civil War? No, I, I, I will, though. I haven't. Yeah, you should, you should take a look at those. He did a whole series. Um, and I, I can't remember what their title, but essentially it's about the Spanish Civil War. By the way, it looks like uh, we both got started a little late with kids because I think we're about the same age. And I have a five and a six-year-old. Two boys, <laughs> by the way. Oh, two boys. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> so that's that sounds energetic. But I, I, I've heard that the boys and girls at this age are really different, and and uh, but it's all it's all hard, you know. Like I mean, it's the best thing I could ever imagine doing. Honestly, I'm very proud of the life I've lived till now, and I would trade all of it in a heartbeat for what I'm doing at the moment. Uh, but boy, it can be tough. Or if I known how much fun kids are, uh, thirty years ago I would have started having them. I'd had twenty by now. So. I'm I'm fortunate to have started late. Back to you, David. And then getting back to sort of how you round out the book, um, you talk about democracy's core virtue of insisting leaders be accountable to others and willing to make sacrifices is crucial to any group that faces adversity. And leaders who don't, and this, this, I guess this just stood out to me, leaders who don't sacrifice aren't leaders, but opportunists. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. And and maybe if you could take that, and sort of round out how you kind of finished out the book there. Yeah, I mean, and, and most, what your theme that you really wanted to get across at the end there. Yeah, I mean, in most in mo- most marginal societies, marginal groups, be that hunter gatherers or motorcycle gangs, um, I think some aspects of the U.S. military um, and insurgencies and revolutionaries, like in in Ireland during the Easter Rising, um, the main leader of the of the of the Easter Rising in Dublin. Um, was, I mean, he ran everybody, right? A guy named Connolly. And, but, it, but when, yeah. <laughs> when it, when it came, when it came time to sort of figuring out where to dig the trenches and build the, uh, put the sandbags, he would just walk out into the street with the, with a bullet skipping off the paves, you know, paving stones all around him to sort of see where it should go. I mean, this would be like Petraeus, General Petraeus walking yeah. out like into directly into gunfire to see, you know what? What? What's the best thing for his men? And and a few, there were some women involved as well. Um, I saw Ahmed Shah Massoud do that uh, in 2000. I was with him in northern Afghanistan as he fought the Taliban. You know, a year before 9/11, um, he was trying to um, plan an infantry assault up a ridge into an entrenched position on a ridge top that the Taliban and Al Qaeda held. And he knew there were minefields, and he had to figure out where they were. And he went into no man's land with a pair of binoculars so close to the Taliban lines that he started getting shot at. I mean, he was the supreme commander of the entire yeah. Northern Alliance forces, and he mm. he took that risk. They almost killed him, right? That's yeah. a leader. Uh, people that are not willing to take risks for the people they lead, be that literally physically or even sort of rhetorically, um, they're not, as I say in the book, they're not really leaders. They're They're opportunists and should be recognized as such. Yeah, it's part of Churchill's uh, claim to fame in many ways, wasn't it? He was always mingling amongst the people during the worst of the wars. But yeah. you know, it's, yeah, that's uh, exactly right. Yeah, that's fantastic. Dave, you have anything to add? Not necessarily. Um, I'm trying to think about uh, this. Is really like a journey of the mind, although uh, <laughs> it's 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 wrapped in a physical journey. That's why I think is so fantastic. Yeah, you, you, you really encompass the beauty of, of parts of America that I think people don't think of. You know, the the Blue Ridge Mountains, the rivers that run up and down the East Coast are really quite extraordinary, but they encapsulate 
so many different aspects of our society that you so brilliantly capture as well. Thank you. What's the publish date? Uh, May 18. Yeah. So I had the book sitting on my, uh, you're going to like this, or you, you may not like it. I had the book sitting on my table and uh, I had a friend over. It's a woman who lives in Germany. And she goes, oh, I, I love Sebastian Junger. Uh, he's so hot. <laughs> and, uh, or something to that effect. I just kind of chuckled. And I, she said, is the book out? I said, no, I've got the, uh, you know, I've got the pre, uh, I can't remember what to call it. I published a novel once. Uh, I can't remember what you call this. Um, the advanced the reading cutter. copy. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Thank you. Um, so she asked when it was coming out. That's why I made, I, I'll actually be seeing her tonight. And I'll remind her that it comes out on May 18th. And it's being published by uh, who's publishing? Penguin, it? I think. Penguin. Or, okay. ad, yeah. Uh, Simon, well, the Simon, other thing Simon, you do, Simon and Schuster. Pen- Simon and Schuster. Schuster yeah. Simon and Schuster. And and please thank your friend for the compliment. I, I appreciate. Yeah. I'm 59, so I'll I'll I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the I'll other this- the other great thing about about this and tribe though is your economy. Uh, I don't know how you covered so much material in such a short span, but as an Intel analyst and a writer in that regard, that's always an admired trait. Uh, You know, everyone looks up to The Economist magazine as the the writing standard because they so concisely can cover complex issues in such uh, a short span. And you did this in both these books. Thank you. To extent, and it kind of compels us to want to go and research a little more on some of these other topics, you know. Um, yeah, my, t- my goal and, is, and it's so contemporary. I mean, it's or timeless, maybe. Maybe it's timeless. I mean, these both these concepts of tribe, community, and then freedom, which is a sort of an extension of that, I think, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to be uh, the definitive account of anything. I want to start, I want to have an original, I want to have an original idea that makes people think. In a, in a slightly different way that then leads them to inquire into the world uh, in a way that maybe they haven't haven't before. That's really what I want to do as a writer. Yeah, right. you definitely did. I've been looking into the Gini coefficient. I, I, I enjoyed that piece. <laughs> Thank you. Well, well, Sebastian, we've we've uh, I think probably expended our time and especially yours as valuable as it is. Uh, so I just wanted to thank you for being uh, a guest on our podcast, Hot Wash. Uh, the great pleasure we had in reading your book and discussing it with you today. Uh, and we really wish you great success with the book. Uh, I mean, we're generally, David and I are so impressed with this book, we'd be remiss if this isn't a great success, I think. Thank thank you. I really appreciate the conversation, guys, and the enthusiasm. I, you know, you're some of the first people... I've talked to that I don't know who have read the book. So all of this is a music to my ears that you guys liked it. Thank you.